The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want to read one verse before I read this uh, section. In Romans 8.35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or perils or sword? In other words, we have great security in our relationship with God because of the way he has uh, responded to our need. He didn't make us more needy. He made us full and complete. And so his promises to us are really exactly what we need to hear. We need to know that he's as strong as we find out that he is. So why should we fear the Lord? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, it's a short passage. Let me just read it. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. And you might think, well, why would I be fearful if, if he's judging fairly and so forth? Why would I do that? And he gives the answer, knowing. It's because we know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, it's because we know something. And the first thing that we know is we know that he paid a tremendous price for us. He says, but we weren't purchased with silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from the forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, the blood of Christ is a picture It's a manifestation of Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf. When when you think about shed blood, it was interesting in Hebrew, when you have blood in the body, it's in the singular. But when it's ever referred to out of the body, it's plural because it's scattered. And he says, we receive these things through the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, because he was willing to give his life and lay down his life for us. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. As I mentioned before, foreknown, you could almost translate that foreloved. It's talking about God knowing him in relationship. They loved one another. He loved the Son. And so he says, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. In other words, it's a great, great blessing that Christ appeared, and believers on the earth were waiting anxiously for this day when Christ would show up, he would appear, and they would see him. There's a neat passage in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, where it says that he appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He appeared for us. He came in order to do this work of salvation, of paying for our sins and making us right with God so that we could live with him throughout eternity goes on, he describes us, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's where our faith and hope is. It's in God. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our performance, but it's in God. He is the one who has made it possible for us to receive this salvation and to possess it as we live our lives. We actually do experience this. It's interesting in in Scripture when it talks about our relationship with God, how important it is. In the first three verse, the first three chapters rather of Romans, the Apostle Paul documents man's abandonment of the living God. That even though they were saved to have a relationship with Him, they pulled away from Him, and it was really the ultimate prophecy. It's described this way: This is the ultimate prophetic prophecy 
of the move of apostasy, a man moving away from God, is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 13, where the expression, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. So this was where man ended up, having no fear of God before their eyes. They didn't see anything that they should fear about pulling away from God. What he's really talking about here is about the most important thing of our faith and our relationship with God. It is our drawing near to him. I've mentioned before that in the Old Covenant, the expression was, stay back, stay back. But in the New Covenant, the expression is, come closer, come closer. Like, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so if you remembered when Moses found himself in Horeb out next to the burning bush, this bush had caught fire from the hot, hot sun, and it was burning, but the bush was not being consumed. And it was a picture of this very thing, of the thing that we are supposed to be on fire for God in the sense of being absolutely fearing him. We see him as the most important thing in all of life. And so we're more concerned about what he thinks and what he feels about what we're doing than anything else. So what he's saying in this section, when he says that they have no fear of God before their eyes, they have moved completely away from God. It's a situation that is almost without remedy other than faith and drawing near to God. And so this is why you have this constant refrain, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And when he says there's no fear before your eyes, that is a strong expression. The word fear means to run, to flee, to get away. Finally, came to also refer to the attitude of, of respect, of awe and reverence and honor, the way we honor God. We fear God, not because we're shaking in our boots that he could kill us, but we honor God because he's the most important person in our life. So it came finally to refer to the attitude of respect and awe and reverence and honor. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom because when you come to see how important God is, you begin to see things as they really are and the way that they're related to each other. This internal emotion that we have at times when we fear the Lord is what he's talking about. He's talking about this kind of respect and awe we have of God. It tells us that in John four eighteen, the fear of Punishment is one thing. The fear of the Lord is something else. We're not fearing punishment. We're fearing God because we respect him so highly. And he says there, a little later on in Romans, he says, um, finally come to, this finally came to refer to the attitude of respect on and so forth. And so there, there's a distinction here. In hope against hope, he believed. That was talking about Abraham. If you remember, Abraham was told to slay his son. This was to picture the, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a picture of God's, the father's struggle of putting his son to death for our benefit. So Abraham takes his son, Isaac, and he's going to offer him up as a sacrifice. If you remember, he takes him up on the hill, and the boy keeps asking him, well, where is the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide. And that's exactly what happened. And so this whole idea of terror is that it repels, something repels us. It causes us to pull back and be afraid. Whereas the word fear of the Lord is talking about being attracted to God, having honor for him. There's no fear in love, we're told. This is what the New Testament says. There's no fear in love, but perfect love is continually casting out fear. And so this is why we don't pull away from God. We don't flee from him. It's because we love him, and it's because we're attracted to him because of that. But we still fear him. We honor him. We respect him above all. 
In the Greek mind, when a man contemplated his own existence, he would have a reverential awe for those things which had power over him, like the gods in the universe and nature or the future, which was unknowable, and the one over him, the gods and nature and the future, who were unknowable. Theology for this is found back in Genesis 22, verse 12. I'd like you to turn back there with me for just a second. Genesis 22, verse 12 says, And he said, this is God speaking to Abraham when he's about to offer up his son, and he is really struggling with this. And God says to him, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Don't turn on him and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear the Lord, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In other words, he was willing to offer up his son, but God stopped him before he did drive the knife through his body and kill him. He says, don't even touch him. Don't, don't do anything against him. In other words, he understood that Abraham feared the Lord and that he would be willing to do that very thing, but that wasn't what God wanted from him at this point. He wanted him to just to be willing to do that. And he wants us to be willing to love him above all things. This past week, I had a strange experience. I've been going through kind of a trial. This trial was getting me so confused about a lot of things. And then one day, God just, in great mercy and and grace, he showed me that I don't have to pull away from my Savior. I, I have a Savior, regardless of what happens in this trial. However it turns out, I have a Savior, and I have a relationship with him, and I'll have a relationship with him throughout all of life and all eternity. And that's never going to change because it's a part of this this whole issue of being the product of God's salvation through Christ. Now, if you remember when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and she felt terror when he said to her, where's your husband? And she said, I don't have a husband. And he says, well, you spoke correctly. You have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your own. So she was full of terror. She wanted to run, but instead she stayed and listened, and she came to cast her fear away from her because that's what God did for her, and he brought her close to him. In the Greek mind, when a man contemplated his own existence, he would have a reverential awe for those things which had power over him, like the gods and nature and the future and so forth, all those things that he can't control. And this is what I was struggling with. I wanted to get this uh, trial I was going through under my control. I wanted to control it, and I wanted to produce the right uh, consequence for it. But instead, I came to the sea where I couldn't control it. I had to submit. I had to simply bow the knee to God. And what he promised me is, I promise that this trial will bring you closer to the Son. You'll come closer to the one that you love the most. And the informing theology of this is here in Genesis 22, verse 12. Genesis 22, verse 12 says, uh, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for the burnt offering in the place of his son. God provided. He provides exactly what Abraham needed. And he's going to provide you with exactly what you need in the trial that you're facing right now. This is what he's done for us, and we can live in confidence in that. We don't have to fret over it because he's made us promises that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I had a lady in a church where I pastored, and she would say to me, if I ever quoted that verse to her, she would say, oh, kind of like, go home and take two aspirin, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. She thought I was just trying to ease her pain, but that wasn't it. I wanted her to understand 
that God does cause all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, because he is God, he's almighty God, and he is able to produce what he wants to produce. And the amazing thing is, as we study this whole issue of trials and trouble in the Christian life, we find out that God has a much higher aim than we do. He is using his troubles in our life. He's using these troubles that he brings into our life. And I say that this is what the Bible tells us, that God is in control of this. And the reason that we have trouble is because he allows us to have trouble because God wants to do something through those troubles. This is what we all face. And so uh, we have this wonderful confidence that God is going to draw us closer to loving his son rather than pushing us away. And so what did Peter have in mind? Have such a reverential awe of God that your whole life is lived in response to him so that you make decisions based upon who God is, not how bad the trial is. No matter what the circumstances, he must be your primary consideration in every decision of life. That's what we're told. And life's motivation, not peer pressure, punishment, pleasure, success, advancement, none of that, but the fear of the Lord. What will bring a man to fear the Lord as he ought to? Well, Proverbs 2, if you ought to read that whole proverb sometime, and it tells you that very thing. This is how we come to fear the Lord. The only rational response to God's self-revelation is fear and honor and awe. Why should we fear the Lord? Well, he tells us here in verse 18, this is 1 Peter 1, verse 18, and he says it's knowing. And what he means by that is because of the things that we know. It's because of what we know that we don't have to fear, that we can understand that God is doing something good in us. Why should we fear the Lord? It's because we know this. We know, first of all, because he paid a tremendous price for you. In verses 18 and 19, it says he redeemed us. The word describes the setting free of a slave by the payment of a ransom. And in this case, it's the blood of Christ that was the ransom price. And the way it worked was, if you were a slave and you wanted to be free, you would have to see to it, you'd have to be able to raise that ransom and have that money and have it ready to offer it. And under the Hellenistic law, a slave was liberated by depositing the price of his ransom at the shrine of a god who returned it less the commission to the master. In other words, you had to pay for it. And not only that, but they received an extra amount of commission for doing it. But the word ransom is lutrao, and it means uh, being ransomed from slavery to freedom. There's another word, agarazo, which means to be transferred to another owner. One person owns a slave, but he is transferred to another owner. These became biblical terms for the work of Christ. He has set us free. He has paid the price to set us free as slaves. We become the servant of God. So from what is it he's delivering us? He's delivering us from futile, inherited things in life, the things that pass down through teaching, environment, and example from one generation to the next. And the way he sets us free is not with perishable things, corruptible things. One of Peter's favorite terms, in fact, the distinction between what the world can give and what God gives. The world gives little silver things and little gold things, diminutive forms, which mean silver and gold coins. These were used to buy slaves out of slavery. But this money was perishable versus the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which is not perishable. And the idea of precious, the reason the blood of Christ is called precious, is a twofold significance. First of all, it's very costly. And secondly, it's highly esteemed. 
So this blood was always a reference. When he talked about the blood of Christ, it was always a reference to the violent death under judgment that Jesus was willing to go through in order to set us free. So that's what blood is. It's a picture of violent death under judgment. Christ's blood is he gave his life, we're told in Isaiah 53, written 740 years before the events took place, that Jesus' blood would be shed and offered for us so that we could be set free. And this is why he says in Mark 10.45 that even the Son of Man, that is this one who is the Messiah, even the Son of Man did not come to to serve, but to, uh, to be served rather, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And so he gave his life as a ransom for us to set us free. And he is called an unblemished and spotless lamb of God. He's all perfect, in other words. The man who appreciates the tremendous price paid for him will live his whole life in response to the living God because he established his plan for our benefit. Was God's plan for redeeming us hastily slapped together? Like, you know, like President Carter's, remember his attempt to rescue the hostages in Iran? And uh, everybody thought it, he just hadn't thought it through well enough. But this plan, the plan of salvation in Christ, was planned before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of creation. And it was executed with precise timing. For example, let me give you one example. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says, he talks about how the, the priest would have to show up every year to offer a sacrifice but that Christ came once, just one time, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It was because of the value of his sacrifice. It was such a high value that it only took one time for him to pay the price for our sins. And so the person who truly appreciates God's gracious plan will live his whole life in response to him. That's what the fear of the Lord is all about, because he wants relationship with you. That's the second reason. He wants the third reason, rather. He wants he wants relationship with you. That's why we fear the Lord. How many people of very high status want to be your friend, want you to be their friend? But God Himself sent His Son so that we could come to know Him and have a relationship with Him. So the logical question is, why did He do all this for you? Verse twenty one answers that. The purpose of this plan is that your faith and hope might be in the Father, that is, in God, who wants to be the object of your faith and the basis of your hope. He wants relationship with you. In John 17, 3, it talks about uh, knowledge. It says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. This is Jesus speaking. He says to the Father, this is eternal life. This is the purpose of eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So God has given us eternal life so that we might know him. Well, why is that so important to him? Because he wants to have a relationship with us, and he wants us to really know him, not just to know about him, but to know him, to know him relationally as our Father. There's a difference between the description of God and the deep emotional responses that relationship with him brings. In other words, uh, when you think about the kind of relationship you have with him, sometimes it touches you so deeply you can hardly contain it. There's a big difference between the description of what God's love for us and the feelings that it produces within us. Why should you conduct your whole life on earth in the fear of the Lord? Why should your primary focus and your ultimate priority in life be the living God? When I was going through this trial, I got to thinking so much about it that I was trying to figure out how to escape it, how I could just get away from all the consequences that I saw coming. But then I realized that God is the one who created me. He paid the immeasurable price to redeem me. He established the plan of the ages for me. 
So who else did all this to have a relationship with me? Who did this to have a relationship with you? God wants you to live your whole life in fear of him, and here is the promise to those who do. It's Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 14, the verse 14. This is what it says. For thus the Lord spoke to me. This is Isaiah writing. He spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy. <laughs> You're not to say that. They, they, were, they were calling the fact that other nations were coming up against them a conspiracy of nations rather than the fact that God was in control. They could not attack him unless God allowed it, and God had a purpose. And he says, in regard to all this people, they all call it a conspiracy, but you're not to do that. And you are not to fear what they fear. That is, you are to fear the Lord. You're not to be in dread of these things that are threatening. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, he says, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. You get that progression? He said, first of all, the Lord, you'll get in that situation where you see the hand of the Lord so mighty and so powerful and that you can't change things. And then he says, then he will become your sanctuary. He will become your protector. That's like uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And And so we're to pray and ask him how we want this to turn out. And he says, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, he will bring real peace to your life in the midst of very nervous times because you don't know how things are going to turn out. But what God wants you to do is he wants you to trust him. Here's what he's promising. I promise you that you will draw closer to me, that you will experience the fear of the Lord in a new depth. You will understand that he is the most important thing in your life. And you can live your life with that assumption and that expectation. So this is why we should fear the Lord. The fearing the Lord is something that causes us to grow, and we come to understand the plans and purposes of God. There's an expression in one of the passages on trials where he says that he is the God who gives to all men liberally and does not upbraid. And that expression is almost like a title. It's, it's almost like saying, he gives to all men liberally and does not upbraid God. That's, that's what he's saying. This is the kind of God he is in the time of trouble, because he's talking about trouble. He's talking about times when I'm having trouble. I should understand that the God who is in charge of this is a God who gives to all of us liberally and does not upbraid us. He doesn't get angry with us because we need something. In fact, there's really an amazing and wonderful thing. I think I mentioned it when I went through this passage in Matthew 11, that the Son of God, who said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am humble, lowly. And he said, he's saying, I love doing this. I love rescuing my people because I love my people. And this is why he does it. So God doesn't say, oh, no, here we go again. He doesn't have that kind of attitude. He has the attitude that he wants to bless your life. He wants to pour out into your life the blessings of who it is that you fear. You fear the Lord. You respect him above all others. And so even though you go through difficult times and you're trying to figure out how can I weather this, how can I go through this, What I need to do is to say, Father, I thank you for this opportunity to trust you. This is really stretching my faith, but I thank you for that because that's how you cause my faith to grow. And I want to have strong faith and confidence in you. So we thank you for this, for these trials. And we thank you, Father, that you've called us to fear the Lord because 
He is more valuable than all others. Let me pray for all of us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you guide us through trials. You're the one who allows them to come, and you're the one who gives us the wisdom we need to take our step through them. And we pray, oh, Father, that you would cause us to grow and to become strong and become more able to trust you and to walk with you, Father. We thank you so much for the troubles we have in our life now. We thank you that you have given us the wisdom that we need in order to face it. Thank you for the glorious, incomparable, valuable uh, blessing you've given us, which is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this gift, and you've given it to us, and we have received it simply by faith. We thank you for that, and we praise your name for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.